With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming. Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details. The 1990s were known for a couple of things. Grunge music and bad, awful boy bands. What else was it known for? Independent films. three-and-a-half-hour disaster that was Michael Cimino's 1980 film Heaven's Gate, Hollywood kind of took back that whole independent feeling of the 1970s back into its own hand and churned out what was considered very boring type of movies. Films like The Last Emperor and Out of Africa kind of come to mind. But come the turn of the 1990s, there was people that wanted to feel free to artistically express themselves. By the end of the 80s and into the 90s, there was a swell of talented, independent-minded filmmakers who felt trapped with the studio system. And so they went outside of it and made some of the best films of that decade. This is my list of the 10 best independent films of the 1990s. Now, I know there's going to be some of you out there thinking to yourselves, well, why was this film included and why wasn't that film included? Give the list a chance. I mean, before you go out there and grab your pitchforks and fire torches, just give me a chance here. Fair enough? What the fiend must be found! Are you ready? Light your torches and go! Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm just I'm just asking for a chance here. I know that this is kind of like a hotly debated thing. People have their own opinions and their own views as to what was great in some eras and blah. This is Mr. Lou's personal little list. Just give me a chance. Please do that. I guess. Thank you. Number 10. The first thing most people say when you mention the name Christopher Nolan is probably the Dark Knight trilogy. I'm Batman. And... You seriously can't blame them because, as in this reviewer's opinion, what Christopher Nolan accomplished in three films, it's taken Marvel to do almost in 30 films, and that is an accomplishment unto itself. However, before he got to The Dark Knight, and even before he got to other great films like Memento, Insomnia, The Prestige, and Dunkirk, he scrapped some money together, got himself some committed actors, wrote, directed, and produced, and shot what will become his feature film debut, 1998's Following. Filmed in black and white, following is the tale of a young man, played by Jeremy Thietbald, who follows people in the hopes to kick his imagination into gear and inspiring himself to write. He has a set of rules, one being that he doesn't follow one person for too long, except that one day he does, and he ends up following a fellow by the name of Cobb, who's played by Alex Hugh, who catches him at a cafe and confronts him about why he's following him. Turns out Cobb is a cat burglar, and from there the tale 
turns into a noir suspense film with all the intrigue that you would expect even this early on from a Christopher Nolan film. Nothing here of any value. You don't seem that concerned. I don't do it for the money. Why do you do For the adrenaline. And because, like you, I'm interested in people. Now you can tell a lot about people from their stuff. How old would you say these people are? To me. Well, you can tell a lot from the futon for a start. Young people have futons. These people wouldn't be anywhere near 40 with a futon. And they've got one laundry bag, which means they're probably very used to each other. Probably about 25 over. It could be 20 and have been living together for years. Yeah. Now look at the books. They're college educated, probably graduated when they're 21 or 22. Moved in together in the last year. You can tell more from the music. The acting is pretty damn good. The choice to film it in black and white was brilliant. And what drives this little film along is its writing. Christopher Nolan is first rate here and he gives you glimpses of things to come in future films. The film is a little over an hour, and I like that Christopher Nolan didn't try to expand on its time. I feel that was one of the bad choices in Reservoir Dogs, where in my opinion, the scenes sometimes seem to drag on a little too long. Here, they are compact, detailed, and they don't drag the story in any way. I've always been intrigued in how careers start, especially by successful artistic um, talent, and this is a great start to what would become and is presently one of the better directors out there today. If you want to see following, uh, two ways to look at it. IFC channel, Prime has it, which would actually be three because if you have the app for the Criterion channel, which is one of my favorites, you can find it there along with documentaries and commentary from Christopher Nolan himself. Do yourself a favor, following is a great, great film. Number nine. The first time I saw this film, I didn't particularly know what the hell I was watching. I was in a period in my film education where I was looking at films that astounded you with its cinematography and its lush shots. And here I found a film that looked and felt dirty almost from the first frame until its final one. Its conclusion leaves you somber and at least for me, it made me reflect on things I've seen and people I knew who kind of somewhat resembled some of the characters in this film. And I don't know if I thought that that was a bad thing per se. But what I do know is that I thought that I'd seen something quite compelling. I'm talking about Larry Clark's 1995 indie masterpiece, Kids. Now, I'm one of the few reviewers, or at least I think I am, that doesn't look at this film as exploitive or obscene. I've always looked at it as a daring commentary on its times, and in many ways it's still a picture that holds up even today. The story revolves around a group of kids in New York City who embrace a lifestyle of sex, drugs, and more sex and drugs. School never seems to be a factor here. The script, the first by Harmony Korn, is raw, and at many times it doesn't even feel like we're seeing actors reciting lines from a script. It looks like we're peeking into private moments where we're voyeurs listening in on private conversations, feeling shocked that kids this age are talking about things that uh, they're talking about. <laughs> For example... Rosario Dawson, in her first film debut, talks about having many sexual partners. Uh, oh, shit. You know what? I have sex and I like fucking. I don't care. Yeah, hell yeah. Girl, girl, girl. I love sex, girl. It's I the love, best thing. I love it is, sex. There's nothing better. It's the best thing. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Right? nah, nah. Sex. Nah, nah, no, no. Yeah. Not, not sex. Foreplay, foreplay. Oh. Uh, Having sex 
and then fuck you. Right, yeah. right. Making love is like, yo, you know what? You know what it's like? It's like sweet. And it's uh, real slow, real slow. And sex. It's like, all right. It's dialogue like that that keeps you wondering to yourself, I mean, is this real? Is this scripted? And according to the filmmakers, this was all scripted. But it still leaves you wondering to yourself, what the fuck am I listening to? Because you're tripping out on how casual these kids are actually talking about what you would consider, I suppose, adult themes. Now, Chloe Savigny is also in this scene, and she is also here in her film debut. And further on in this scene, she describes how she was deflowered by the character played by Leo Fitzpatrick, also in his film debut, named Telly. Now, what you feel here is like you're reading somebody's diary, and you know afterwards you kind of feel dirty about having done it. It's important to remember here that despite the fact that the movie looks like it was made for shock value and for um, exploitative purposes... It actually does have a story, and it's exemplified in the climax of the film. Um, There are moments, especially the final scene, where it's harrowing and and heartbreaking. And at the same time, it's very tragic. Kids is a great movie. It's raw. It's daring. And it's only really available on YouTube and this one site that I'm not going to recommend because it's actually out of Europe somewhere. Uh, but it's not available on any of the streamers, I guess. Uh, even to this day, the movie remains controversial, remains very too raw for some sensitive people. Anyways, but it's still a great film. Larry Clark's Kits from 1995. Number nine. Films about men of the cloth and their fall from grace have always fascinated me. I love the movie Elmer Gantry, for example, a film so ahead of its time, daring for trading waters in a more conservative, pious time, and it ruffled many feathers. Almost 40 years later, one of the most respected actors of his time took it upon himself to write and direct a film that touches on many of the same themes of morality, sin, and the search for redemption. No one wanted to touch this script, so its writer, Oscar-winning actor Robert Duvall, financed it himself, and in that decision produced one of the most highly louded films of the 1990s, 1997's The Apostle. Robert Duvall plays preacher Sonny Dewey, who has recently discovered that his wife is leaving him for a much younger man who she's been carrying an adulterous affair with. This does bug him a little bit, but not as much as when he's being ousted by his own church, by his own board, with the prodding of his soon-to-be ex-wife. Let's face it, in this movie, Robert Duvall plays a sanctimonious drunk prick, and it all comes to a head when, at his kid's baseball game, he decides to grab a bat and hit his wife's lover's head into the gap for a ground rule double. You feel all right? I feel about as good as I've ever felt in my life thus far, Rodney. Yeah, I do. So I want you to stay here. My, my, my name's not Rodney. Well, I, I want to see my beauties, if you don't mind. Yeah. Sonny, listen to me. I'm, I'm really and truly sorry about what's happened here. I really am. Well, let me tell you something. Why didn't you just butt out of here for me? Take my, my, my boot here and tear you out another asshole. Right through your nose of that. You understand me? Right. Sonny, there ain't no call for that kind of talk there, now. We'll see about that. Right. Come on, let's go. Let's everybody go home now. Hey, Y'all go ahead and play. I'm trying sure to make up the party here. Everybody go home now. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Here, give me that. Don't, don't call me. Run for the road, Rodney. Run for the road. Hey, what's up? Ow! Stop, Sonny! 
Yeah, one for the road indeed. Suffice to say that after he whacks him in the head with a bat, it leaves the guy in a coma that, you know, eventually culminates in his death. But you would think that a man of the cloth would stick around and face the music, leaving it all in the hands of God, right? Of course not. He does what they all do. They run. Dewey changes his identity and proceeds to cultivate another life in another town. And keeping with the tradition of arrogant, shameless charlatans like him, he decides that opening up a brand new church while being sought after by the law is a good idea. The exercise in redemption is more for Dewey to justify his life, and in the end, when cornered, he finally practices what he preaches. But to what avail? This movie has a great cast. Farrah Fawcett plays his wife in one of her last roles before her death. Billy Bob Thornton and, of course, Robert Duvall in a performance for the ages. My compadre, the great but yet not late Gary Merchant, uh, is a great fan of this movie. That year, he had picked Robert Duvall to win the Oscar. Um, I had picked Peter Fonda in another movie, but for some reason, Jack Nicholson won it for a movie called As Good As It Gets, which actually wasn't. That's no knock on Mr. Nicholson. You just weren't the best actor that year. Sorry. Anywho, The Apostle is available on the Stars Network. It is part of a Cinemax, I believe, package, and you can get it for seven days free if you are inclined to want to see this film. I do highly recommend it. It's a great tour de force performance by Robert Duvall, one of our better and overlooked actors. In 1998, if you threw a rock anywhere, you would have probably had a good chance of hitting Christina Ricci. She was everywhere that year, becoming the new queen of the Indies. Having grown up from her days as Wednesday Adams, Richie pursued roles that, you know, would eventually expand on her talent and reach a more appreciative audience. Although her best performance in 1998 was possibly the movie The Opposite of Sex, Richie truly became an indie queen when she starred opposite Vizingalo in a film he produced, wrote, directed, edited, and wrote music to. Buffalo 66 solidified her standing as an actress who was willing to take risks. Playing the role of Layla, a woman who is kidnapped by a just-out-of-jail Billy played by Vincent Gallo, she agrees to play along as his girlfriend to give legitimacy to the story that he has told his parents that he is in the CIA and has just returned from a secret mission. The fact that he looks like he, you know, just got out of jail, of course, makes the story even more ridiculous. And the scene with his parents, played by the great Angelica Houston and the great late Ben Gazzara, are funny are tragic and downright gut-wrenching at the same time. Underneath all this, Billy carries a fantasy love for a woman who only remembers him because they happen to have gone to the same school together. Mickey Rourke, playing the reason why Gala went to jail in the first place, is gold in this movie, reminding you somewhat of Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glen Ross. He's only in it for just a little bit, but it's just terrific. Come on, what is that? What? What are you doing? You just made me waste two dollars. Get off. Just look like you like me. That's it. Can you do that? 
the ironic part about that particular scene is he's telling the girl, hey, act like you like me. And apparently she did a lot of acting like she liked him because there's rumors from the set that Vincent Gallo was a total and complete asshole while production was going on. Not only from Christina Ricci, but Angelica Houston as well as said the same thing. Despite that the movie is incredibly well written, it's very witty, and it's so well directed. The only drag, according to the great but still not late (laughs) Gary Merchant, who actually back in 1998 went to go see this film with me in the movie theaters, is the ending. He was so displeased by it. I thought it was actually not a bad ending. He hated it. But despite that, Buffalo 66 is a great milestone in independent filmmaking in the 1990s. It put uh, Vincent Gallo on the map. Christina Ricci, resoundingly one of the best actresses of that era. Buffalo 66 is available on Prime. If you have the Pluto TV app, it's available on there as well, but it does carry commercials. Um, It's still well worth your time to see this film. Number six. Movies with women characters that are just as bad, if not more than men, are great to watch. Case in point, 1994's tour de force performance by Linda Fiorentino and John Dahl's The Last Seduction. A movie this reviewer thought would garnish Miss Fiorentino with at least an Oscar nomination, but Hollywood still wasn't quite ready for films like this, despite the success of other films like Pulp Fiction, which was released that same year. Nope. The studios were still about the movies that made maximum bucks. Never mind that the indie scene had been kicked open to a point where you couldn't deny the great deal of talent that was coming onto the horizon. And this movie is one of those movies. Linda Fiorentino plays a manipulative woman who's looking to steal her husband's money and is looking to get away from their life. As she does, she ends up picking up a slow brain twit named Mike, who she uses initially just to have simple sexual gratification. As Mike begins to fall more and more for her, she begins to manipulate him even more and more to commit murder and eventually uses his own secret against him to seal his fate. Get off of me. Get off of me. You're lucky I don't kill you. You're lucky. You're going to jail. You're going to jail. Trish wasn't really coming to best. What did you say? You should have told me you never slept with a man before. It must have been some wild night. You get married so fast, you couldn't believe really it. Stop! How to keep the goods hidden for a whole two days. What did you tell you? The little wobbly thing in the back of your throat was a clitoris? Get married a man, you farm faggot. Shut your mouth! I'm Trish. Rape me! Shut your mouth! Rape me! You want to be raped? Is that what you want? You want to fucking be raped? You want to play games? There's the climatic, very intense final scene of this movie in which Linda Fiorentino's character has just set up her lover to take the fall for the murder of her husband and basically um, get away with the perfect crime. Bill Pullman plays her asshole of a husband and Peter Burke here is brilliant as the dim-witted lover who, as you can just hear in this last scene, was just set up. 
Um, John Dahl's direction is tight. It's suspenseful. Um, it helps drive the movie. And for its time, which was kind of like the um, kind of the norm for films, this is a non-linear film in its storytelling. Um, this sets up uh, an, a terrific climax. It's such an entertaining film. For me, why Linda Fiorentino was not nominated for an Academy Award is a question for the ages. If you have HBO Go, this is where you can see this movie. Do so. It's it's a terrific, terrific film. Great performances. Number five. P.T. Anderson became known for directing Burt Reynolds' career back to life in the movie Boogie Nights. Similarly, like Tar- Quentin Tarantino did for John Travolta in the movie Pulp Fiction. But he was also able to provide veteran character actor Philip uh, Baker Hall a project to showcase his talents in what will become his directorial debut, Heart 8. In it, Hall plays veteran gangster gambler Sidney, who meets Drifter John, who's played by uh, P.T. Anderson regular John C. Riley, and offers him a deal. Is it a deal with the devil? Is it a scam? Is it right? Is it wrong? Or is it just it? Isn't there someone who could... Uh... No. Family? There's no one else, okay? It's me. It's just, I'm alone. That's, that's it, okay? There you go. That gonna be it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Thank you. How much money do you have left? Nothing. If I were to give you $50, what would you do with it? How long can you eat? How long can you live on fifty dollars? I don't know. I would bet not very long. Unlike some of his feature films, most notably Boogie Nights and Magnolia, Anderson is well paced here, and his story flows like water down a river. As you can expect, though, Anderson's writing here is impeccable. His direction is tight, and his focus is that of a confident artist without any sort of fear, traits that he would incorporate in his future work. Here, he has a firm grasp of how he wants to fulfill his vision. Most importantly, it looks like he has firm command of his actors, and you can tell that they are confident in his ability to make this material great. John C. Riley, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Baker Hall are all regulars and future um, actors in some of P.T. Anderson's work. Here, of course, Riley will play the dimless character that he also plays in Boogie Nights. However, um, the fact that we know that John C. Riley isn't a dimless person in real life only accentuates how great an actor he really is. Uh, Samuel Jackson, Gwyneth Paltrow also star in this movie. Um, if you want to see this movie, again, it's P.T. Anderson's uh, debut film, it's available on Prime. Number four. Something very strange happened on the way to Nicolas Cage's downward spiral into direct-to-cable and B-rated movies. A man who was once considered an eccentric, risk-taken, but talented actor has become one of Hollywood's best punchlines lately. I am sometimes compelled to ask two questions about Nicolas Cage. Number one, how are you still working? And number two, who is it that hires you so that you can keep working? I think that after all this time since his Oscar-winning turn as a drunk with a death wish and Mike Figgis is leaving Las Vegas, the luster off of the starring Oscar-winning actor has long ago lost its shine. However, 
There was a time when Nicolas Cage was considered a top talent and his films were only laughed at when they were comedies. I have read reviews that have criticized Cage's performances in this film Leaving Las Vegas as one note. And in many ways they are right, but I mean there's many other actors who have done the same thing and yet carried a film to its brilliant conclusion. Uh, Al Pacino's Dog Day Afternoon is one of the films that comes to mind. I mean there some will point out that there are some tender moments that Pacino had in that movie. But I can say the same thing about Nicolas Cage's performance here as well. In embodying the character of Ben Sanderson, Cage manages to not only draw sympathy from the audience, but he also manages to gel so well with his co-star Elizabeth Shue. He is charming, he's funny, and he's such a sad sap that when he finally dies at the end, you feel this bit of sadness, but who do you feel it for? And I think that's the big question Mike Figgis makes in this movie. When is your rent coming up at the motel? What do you mean? I mean that I think you should go and and bring all your stuff over here. Sarah. Sarah, you were crazy. So? Don't you think you'll get a little bored living with a drunk? that's what I want you haven't seen the worst of it these last few days I've been very controlled but I knock things over and throw up all the time I mean right now I feel really good you're like some kind of antidote mixes with the liquor and keeps me in balance But that won't last forever. Okay. All right, you go back to your motel. I'll go back to my glamorous life of being alone. Elizabeth Shue plays the proverbial hooker with the heart of gold in this movie. But that's not to say that her performance wasn't great. It actually, it's very, very intense. This was a big risk for her as an artist because she was trying to shed that teen movie star label that she had been carrying around since the first Karate Kid film. She is so good here and so heartbreaking. You don't know why in the world she would want to be with a guy like Sanderson. And at the same time, you kind of understand why she does. Again, this is another film that was shot in 16mm as opposed to the usual 35mm, and it works. It gives the film a grittiness that sometimes is too glossed over in other films centered in Las Vegas or even on this subject. And make no mistake, despite the fact that even Nicolas Cage today is somewhat, you know, laughed at, his performance in this movie is terrific and at one time was very good, especially in a lot of films after this. Um, the only other film that I can think of after leaving Las Vegas that I thought he was brilliant in was probably Adaptation. But that's a movie we'll discuss for another time. Number three. I love you, Paul. I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! Even talking about Pulp Fiction is an incredibly daunting task. I mean, after all that's been said and done, it's really just kind of trying to write a new biography on the Beatles. What can you possibly bring to the table that's new and fresh? What angle can you bring to it that no one else hasn't discussed before? 
Well, first things first. We're talking about one of the watershed moments in film history. One can easily make the comparison that this movie is equal to what Brando did in Streetcar Named Desire or what Francis Ford Coppola did in Godfather. It didn't usher in the indie scene per se, but it did kick the door wide open and there was no looking back after that. Very simple. My angle is not about how great this movie is, more why it continues to be so influential and why it's still looked after as one of the greatest masterpieces ever made. For starters, it's a film whose story, script, and performances stand up even today. While many of the movies that came in its wake have aged like wine that was never good in the first place, Pulp Fiction still holds its audience attention, its humor is still crisp, and its originality still intact after almost 30 years. Career performances by John Travolta, who has wasted his career ever since. (laughs) Uh, Bruce Willis, who became known as someone other than an action star because of this film. And Samuel Jackson, who people kind of knew as a character actor, but came to the fore in this film. Unfortunately, since then, anybody who's ever directed him or has written a movie with him in mind keeps throwing the word motherfucker in there about 30 times just to hear him say it. Good thing George Lucas didn't do that in the Star Wars film. Well, he didn't mention the fact that in Europe they also drown their French fries in mayo. And as a Guatemalan, I don't see a problem with that. But, you know, some people do. <laughs> All right. Pulp Fiction to this day is still worth watching. It is still holds its, it still holds its gritty. And, and it's an amusing tale of L.A. crime. Uh, daring for its time, great for all time. Number two. Entonces, tú eres el mariachi que vino a mi tierra, mató a mis hombres y se cogió a mi vieja. Eres muy talentoso. Hazte tocar muy bien. Tu guitarrita. Pues ya no. Ahora, vete de aquí. Y llévate tu mano. Well, when you when you try to pinpoint the actual film that perhaps really started that whole indie boom of the 1990s, the place to probably start is Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi, a film that was made roughly for about $7,000. Yes, you heard right, $7,000. 
It stands out as the first of the Mexico trilogy that Robert Rodriguez would produce. And make no mistake, this is a milestone of independent filmmaking. As stated, the film was done for roughly $7,000, yet its ambition and scope is that of a major motion picture. And saying that, the two other films that came after it, Desperado and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, both with bigger budgets and name actors, fails to capture the spirit and the boldness of this original. The movie is set in a border town city of Mexico where the local drug kingpin who you just, who you just heard got blown away, Moco, is paranoid for his life when he finds out that an, a man that he double-crossed, an assassin named Azul, has escaped jail and is out to kill him. No one has ever seen him but Moco, and all anyone knows about him is that he carries around a guitar case with weapons inside. So imagine the shock of the town when in comes an unemployed musician looking for work carrying a guitar case who no one has ever seen before strolling into town. Robert Rodriguez's script and direction, his actors and his story are so fresh and so well executed. When push comes to shove, when I'm asked uh, Reservoir Dogs or El Mariachi, I always go with El Mariachi because I think that this was just a tighter film. It always has been for me, and uh, it's disappointing that the two films that came after it were not as good. Then again, you're talking about um, a time when a musician, I'm sorry, a musician, a filmmaker has no budget and is really just looking to tighten up his story. Again, a watershed moment for independent filmmaking. Terrific film. El Mariachi by Robert Rodriguez. Watch it in Spanish. It's actually better. Uh, the dubbing in English kind of reminds me of when you see uh, martial art films and they're so badly dubbed. Spanish version better. I mean, reading the subtitles is going to... I mean, it's a well-worth great film. Um, please look this up. This was a film that I kind of had a little difficulty finding. But if you do watch it, it's an amazing film and, a, and an incredible study of how to actually make an independent film on the lowest of budgets. And now we come to my pick as the number one independent film of the 1990s. Tell you, 
For as much accolades that Pulp Fiction has received over the decades as one of the greatest movies ever, it seems that one that doesn't get enough attention or accolades is Neil Jordan's 1992 masterpiece, The Crying Game, a movie that originally nobody wanted to finance, let alone even make. Now, I know some people out there are saying to themselves, well, Miramax made that, so how does that make it an independent film? Especially because at this time, Disney had already bought Miramax. However, Disney, when they saw the script, wanted nothing to do with anything to do with the crying game. So Harvey Weinstein and his brother, yes, that Harvey Weinstein, decided that they were going to finance the film and they were going to release it under Miramax, independent of Disney, the parent company, technically making this movie an independent film. Now, this is a film that, in my opinion, not only set the bar for originality, but it, it also is one of those films that made a bold and a very concise statement. We're talking about 1992 here, and the year prior, Tom Hanks had won an Academy Award for playing a gay man with AIDS. This was groundbreaking for its time, and the movie, despite the fact that some people might say, what's well, so original about it, for 1992, no one was making films like this. Uh, the film uh, opened up the door for all other successes that were to come along later in the independent film. What, what it did is, is um, it made it possible for people to make an independent film and have it be a box office hit, which this was, especially after the Oscars came out. Now, this movie stars Stephen Ray in a groundbreaking performance, and in my opinion, in any other year in which Al Pacino isn't doing Oscar, he wins the Oscar for this movie. To me... This is, a, is, again, like I said, a groundbreaking performance. He plays Fergus, an ex-IRA foot soldier who's involved in the kidnapping and then the botched assassination of an English soldier, which is played by future Academy Award winner Forrest Whitaker, who we heard in the soundbite there. Uh, Fergus and his co-conspirators are either killed or barely escape with their lives once the plot fails. However, Fergus, at the request of uh, Forrest Whitaker's uh, um, character, Jody. This um, looks up his girlfriend, wife, and uh, takes on a new name, takes on a new identity. His name is Jimmy now, and when he looks her up, her name is Dill. At the local watering hole called the Metro, the sol that the soldier had described, Dill be he becomes Dill's protector, and later his love. Now, this movie is, in my opinion, a love story, despite the fact that there's a lot of intrigue, a lot of suspense, a lot of um, kind of like you know spy stuff going on. However. The, the bulk of it is the relationship between Dill and Fergus, and in my opinion, it is a very unique and it's a very original um, love story. It is well-paced, again, originally groundbreaking concept, which now seem a little tame for their time, but again, like I keep repeating, we're talking 1992. The Crying Game made stars of Miranda Richardson, uh, Neil Jordan, who ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Original Script, and Jay Davidson, who is the big secret in the movie. And if you haven't seen it, I'll keep quiet about it. But if you have, you know exactly why his performance was so great. Um, Stephen Ray, in what can only be described in one of the boldest performances, in my opinion, of the last 30 years. Crying Game doesn't get enough credit for the masterpiece that it is and not enough credit for the ground that it broke, ground that films today tread on. Um... So if you haven't seen it, and if you haven't, um, or or have you, or if you haven't seen it in a long while, give it a second look. Um, again, groundbreaking for its time, and I, and in my opinion, an independent film which proved to be a box office hit, hit, and that I think opened at least pulled the door ajar 
for all the other films that would coming next. That is my top 10 of the 1990s. I hope that the pitchforks and uh, torches have been put away a little bit. A little bit. Let's get him, Ferry. <laughs> Goodness, tough crowd, man. All right. This has been episode three of Mr. Lou's Music and Movie Review. I appreciate the time that you guys have taken. Please uh, comment and like and subscribe and let me know what you guys think so far of the show. I know it's only been three episodes, still getting my feet wet a little bit. However, um, I would love to hear suggestions. I would love to hear comments, what you guys think of this. Um, if you think my list was shit, if you guys agree with my list, suggestions or movies that you guys want me to review. Again, very appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. Until next time. age of podcasting, which also means the age of podcast networks with large back catalogs, long-running series, limited programming, and even cross-network collaborations. How are publishers supposed to keep this all organized? With Spreaker, of course. Spreaker's customizable publisher plan lets you organize your content exactly how you want it and gives you enough pod tech tools to monetize the largest back catalogs. If you're into premium offerings for subscribers, check out Spreaker's customized RSS feeds to upload and schedule exclusive content with ease. Or use our campaign manager to manage different campaigns from one central platform. Once your podcast business gets big enough, you can even add multiple networks to one account and collaborators assigned to each one. That helps keep the true crime series away from the comedy podcasts and make sure you get the advertisements that will resonate the most with your listeners. So let's move from the age of podcasting to the age of the podcast network with Spreaker. Head to Spreaker.com to learn more. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com.